Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. On April 23, 1937, uh, early in the Spanish Civil War, uh, Nazi airplanes under the command of General Franco, who had started a coup d'etat against the Republican government, Nazi airplanes bombed the city of Guernica. Civilian population, not a military target of any kind, but is the is in the northern Spain, uh, in northern Spain in the Basque country, and the Basque were against the coup d'état of General Franco, uh, so they were bombed. Twenty-five uh, percent of the population died: women, children, and of course men. Uh, the first time that the civilian population had been intentionally bombed from the air. Um, the great Spanish painter Picasso had been commissioned by the Republican government to paint a mural for the um, world exhibit that was going to take place in October of that year in Paris for the Spanish pavilion. Picasso, he- hearing of this massacre in a fit of uh, money creativity, um, he sketched this painting, this huge painting, which is more than 23 feet long and more than 8 feet high in 12 days, and eventually, of course, completed the painting. Well, I think we will all agree that this painting was painted with a designed purpose uh, to convey some message, the horrors of war, the inhumanity of humans to humans, Similarly, we would agree that um, a watch has been designed intentionally for the purpose of telling time, and a car has been designed for transportation. What about these letters of the alphabet and these digits? These are butterfly wings. Now, clearly we could use these letters to write English text, and we could use the digits to make arithmetic calculations, but we would agree that's not the purpose or the specific design of the wings of the butterflies. They have not been designed for that purpose. In the same way, we can use a mountain for skiing, and we can use the rivers for navigation, but we would not say that they have been designed for that purpose. What about the human eye? Well, the main um, gist of, the, of this lecture is going to be um, that the human eye shares something in common with the painting and the watch and the car, and something in common with the butterfly wings and the mountains and the rivers. What it has in common with the eye, I mean with the uh, painting, if, it's, if it were not for the purpose it serves, and it's also with the watch and with the car, it would never have come to exist. The eye exists because it serves the purpose of seeing. But what it has in common with the butterfly wings and the mountains and the river is that it's not the result of intentional design. So it's designed, but it is not the result of intentional design is the result of a natural process. 
And that's, as I said, the main message that I want to convey to you today. The Darwinian revolution is associated with the publication by Darwin of The Origin of Species in 1859. And now we know, and there was his argument, that, that humans are just one more species which is related by descent to many to all the other species in the world, really, but closely related to the apes. In fact, now we know that our closest relatives are the chimpanzees and a little less closely related the gorillas and so on. Um, I'm going to tell you that this narrative of the history of ideas uh, misses what is most important about these two revolutions. What this narrative says is true, but they miss what is most important. These two revolutions represent the beginning of science in the modern sense of the world. The, the commitment to the notion that the world consists of matter in motion governed by natural laws, laws that can be discovered and it can be subject to observation and experiment as a way of testing them. So in order to um, evaluate the Copernican revolution, we have to take into account several of his successors, of, of which I have uh, highlighted here Galileo and Newton, who lived about 100 or nearly 100 years apart from each other, and Galileo from Copernicus. Here you have Galileo and Newton, and there's the formulation of simple laws like this, force equal mass times acceleration of the inverse square law of attraction between bodies, two bodies attract themselves proportionally to the product of their masses, but inversely related to the square of their distance. It's the simple laws which we are argued to apply on Earth as well as in the heavens, and that could be discovered and could be subject to observation and experiment. The Copernican Revolution, understood that way, had left out organisms, the design and the diversity of organisms, for reasons that come from a tradition in almost all the religious traditions, but was formulated better than by anybody else before or after was, for that matter, by William Paley. William Paley was an English clergyman, um, author of several books of theology, uh, which, by the way, were part of the canon in the University of Cambridge when Darwin studied there, so Darwin have read this book, um, Natural Theology, as well as others by, by William Paley. Um, he was also a well-known speaker, abolitionist. Um, slavery existed in Great Britain at the time and in the colonies, and there were a number of people, including, by the way, later on Darwin, as well as his uh, uh, family, um, trying to eliminate slavery. In 1800, William Paley became ill, somewhat ill, and had to give up his lecturing career, public lecturing, and decided to study biology. Biology had made a lot of progress in the second part of the 18th century, and he studied biology and then published this book, Natural Theology, which is an extended argument that the design of organisms clearly 
shows that there has to be a designer. And because we are talking about all the organisms in the, in the world, all the living things and all their parts, there has to be the creator. So he was using, he's using in the book the design of organisms as a evidence of the existence of a creator, of a designer, of an intelligent designer, as it would be put in modern terms. Um, here starts with, as an example, with the human eye and points out that there are many parts, the, the sum of which are highlighted here, the iris, the cornea, the lens, uh, the retina, um, and the optic nerve, which cross the retina in order to go to the brain. And he says, assume, this is at the very beginning of the book, assume that I am walking in a meadow with a friend and accidentally I kick a stone. And my friend says, where does the stone come from? And Paley says, for all what I know, I could tell my friend, I don't know, it may have been there forever. There's nothing to be explained. But assume that I... Go a little, we go a little farther, and then I happen to kick a watch. Can I give the same answer? He says, no. There's a watch somewhere. There's a watchmaker. How do I know that? Because watch is a complex entity with many parts that all have to be put together in a precise way for it to function. That calls for a designer, for a watchmaker. Well, the book is a beautiful book, Natural History, written in beautiful English, where he reviews uh, the biology of humans as then known, and the various parts, not only the eye, but other organs and parts, other animals, um, the relationship between the sexes in animals and in, in humans, and the relationship between plants and animals, and uh, plants and animals and the environment, and again and again, he comes to the same conclusion. We see evidence of the sign. And wherever there is a sign, there is a designer. Well, it was the genius of Darwin that he, could, he extended the scientific revolution to organisms. He had seen to the authors of the, of the Copernican revolution that organisms were out of the play of explanation by natural laws for the reasons that later, but they have before also, I have, I have been given, I have given that organisms give clear evidence of the sign. Darwin's genius was to discover that you can explain the sign without the signer, the sign as the result of a natural processes, and thereby he brought the diversity of organisms and the adaptations of organisms, the fact that we have eyes to see and birds have wings to fly and fish have gills to breathe in water, all of this could be brought in the realm of science, explanation by natural laws that can be subject to test by observation and experiment. You all have heard that The Origin of a Species is a book about evolution. Well, that's wrong. The Origin of a Species is not a book about evolution. It's a book about natural selection. Darwin was, at the time, uh, working on a multi-volume uh, book that was going to be entitled Natural Selection. Then, for historical reasons that I will not go into at this point, um, he had to produce this book 
fairly early and quickly. Uh, so he wrote what he considered a summary of the multivolume book. There's the origin of a species. He didn't want it to call natural selection because that was going to be the title for his main book. So he called it On the Origin of a Species by Means of Natural Selection. The book is about natural selection. The first chapter is about selection as practiced by farmers and animal breeders uh, who are able to uh, have uh, dogs of different breeds or, or pigeons, as they were very popular at the time, with different characteristics, or cows that produce more milk or whatever. Um, he, in the first chapter, he points out how humans have used spontaneous variations which appear in animals and plants to produce uh, kinds of animals or kinds of plants that meet our needs. Again, a cow that produces more milk or a, a chicken that yields, uh, produces more eggs. He says, if variations that can be used by humans for their own purposes hereditary variations occur spontaneously, it stands to reason that hereditary variations which are beneficial to the organisms themselves might also occur. Genetics as a science didn't exist at the time, but he makes this supposition later, in later years he will work on that subject more. So in chapter two of The Origin of Species, it starts to develop the argument for natural selection and goes until, until chapter, through chapter 8. And then in chapter 9 says, if my theory of natural selection is correct, evolution must have occurred, but must have occurred in a certain way. Evolution was very commonly accepted in the middle of the 19th century by biologists, but they understood evolution in the way for, that, for example, Lamarck, a French zoologist, um, developed his theory of evolution in 1809, the year that Darwin was born. That is, that organisms change gradually in all relevant respects and become, more, over time, more advanced, more developed, and be eventually become higher kinds of organisms. Darwin says, no, if, uh, if my theory of natural selection is correct, then evolution would have occurred differently. Namely, that some parts of organisms will change at some point, others at some other point or in some other place. Some may not change, and he points out to organisms that have not changed for millions of years because they are responding by natural selection to the demands of the environment. If the environment does not change, like in the open ocean, there is no reason for organisms to change. If the environment is changing, then variations that would be useful to the organisms uh, will be multiplied, will be favored over the generations because the organisms that carry those variations will reproduce and survive better. And this is the simple notion of natural selection, a very simple concept that um, he expresses in many ways in the book. Uh, I'm going to have a, one of the places where he says it in a single paragraph in chapter 3. So he starts in chapter 9 with the evidence for evolution and has two chapters dedicated to geology and, and paleontology, two chapters dedicated to biogeography, 
and one chapter dedicated to comparative anatomy and embryology. And then in chapter 14, the last chapter, comes back to natural selection, thinking that the evidence for evolution was, uh, as he saw it, and as he presented it, it was evidence for the natural selection. So this is one of the places where he summarizes early on his theory. And um, he says, seeing that variations useful to man have undoubtedly occurred, can it be thought improbable that other variations useful in some way to each being in the great and complex battle of life should sometimes occur in the course of thousands of generations? If such do occur, can we doubt that individuals having any advantage, however slight, over others would have the best chance of surviving and of procreating their kind? On the other hand, we may feel sure that any variation in the least degree injurious would be rigidly destroyed. This preservation, he should have said multiplication also, of favorable variations and the rejection of injurious variations, I call natural selection. Very simple concept. Of course, nowadays we have a very elaborate mathematical theory around it and all sorts of uh, evidence and experiments. So the evidence comes from geology and paleontology, as we would call it also today. It was uh, discovered through the first half of the 19th century, particularly starting somewhat earlier, um, that where the earth gets exposed by erosion or some other way, one finds out that there are these layers, these strata, and that it was discovered that these strata have formed at the bottom of the sea over time, and therefore the strata that are below are older than the ones which are above. This is in the Grand Canyon. Here you have the Colorado River, there's one mile to the top, and two billion years of evolution, and many fossils. So the evolution of organisms through time could be reconstructed by seeing the fossils that were found in different layers. So evolution of the horse and other animals and could be reconstructed. This is a modern reconstruction, but will help me to make some points. One of them, very relevant to Darwin's argument, is that different parts of the organisms change at different times. Here we have the first animal that can be classified as a kind of horse, lived about 55 million years ago. We normally put the age on the left side. Um, it was a small animal the size of a medium-sized dog, uh, had four toes, and over time the toes become reduced to one, the animal becomes much larger. Many other changes occurred, and many of them occurred in different species. One way, again, in which evolutionists represent evolution is by having a tree with branches. You have the trunk going through time, and when a new species arises, it's a new branch. And so you see many species of horses have existed in the past. Most species become extinct. We know now that more than 99.9% all the species that existed in the past became extinct. So new species are being produced. Others are extinct. And we have a balance between the two, which is the diversity that we have in the world today. In the case of horses, we have the modern horses. The critics of Darwin um, 
raised the question that became known as the, the, the missing link. They said, well, if organisms change gradually, and in some cases you go from one kind of organism to a different one, where are the intermediates between major groups of organisms? None was known at the time Darwin published The Origin of a Species. Um, an important link was discovered two years later in 1861 in Bavaria, this creature called Archaeopteris. Um, is by and large mostly a dinosaur. This, the bone structure is the dinosaur and has a long tail. But the, much of the head and the beak is from like a bird and has already wings. This was a relatively small animal like a crow. By now, by the way, 10 such fossils have been found, all of them in Bavaria, but clearly intermediate between uh, a reptile, a dinosaur, and a bird, precisely as Darwin was postulated that some things we change first, some things later, the skeleton of the bird becoming bird, the bird changes later, but you have already the largely the beak and the, and the wings and other things. In later editions of the origin of a species, Darwin incorporates this, uh, this fossil, Archaeopteryx. Um, the last one, by the way, was uh, uh, discovered, or at least described, about five years ago, and an American millionaire from Wyoming uh, bought it, and it, now we have one of these fossils, and actually the best one, we have it in our country in a private museum that this gentleman maintains in Wyoming. So you can go and see it by yourself. The other nine are in Europe. Um, but of course, the missing link that um, was very much in the mind of Darwin's contemporaries and still is in the, in the minds of skeptics are the intermediates between primates and humans. If our ancestors were not human, they were primates where are the intermediates. Darwin died without uh, any such intermediate having been discovered. In, he died in, 19, in 1882. In 1889, the first hominid fossil was discovered. The intermediates between primates and humans, which are ancestors to us after our, the separation of our lineage from the lineage to go to the chimpanzees, our closest relatives, are called hominids, or in more modern language, hominins. And um, a Dutch doctor working in Java discovered this fossil of what was called Java man, and that he called Pithecanthropus erectus, Pithecus, the root for monkey, Anthropos, the, the, the root, the Greek root for human, and erectus because he knew he was an atom, a doctor, he knew enough anatomy that these bones that he had found, um, several bones and much of the cranium of an individual, that this animal have an um, erect posture, an erect uh, bipedal gait, so this he calls it Pithecanthropus erectus, now we call it Homo erectus. Uh, so that was in 1889, seven years after the death of Darwin, since then, thousands, not just hundreds, but thousands of fossil intermediates between primates and humans have been discovered, and I have indicated a few of them 
here some of the species. Again, the age is indicated on the left. We, our lineage is separates from the lineage that goes to the chimpanzees about 7 million years ago and come to the present. Then you have these several species. The bar indicates the time approximately when the species lasted and you have a succession of species. We are not very sure in most cases of the relationships of ancestry at descent. Notice that at several times there are several species of hominids existing. Uh, what we do know is that they were bipedal from almost the beginning. You think of the two main features that distinguish us from the primates in the minds of, of anatomists. One is the bipedal gait. The chimps and gorillas, they walk by, on their, by resting on their knuckles. Uh, it's called knuckle walking. They need very long arms and then have the knuckles. Um, the other thing is the large brain. Again, as Darwin would have been pleased to notice, the bipedal gait appears very early in, in, uh, the, in, human, in the hominid evolution. The brain starts to increase only with Homo habilis about two million years ago. So for the first five million years of hominid evolution, they had very small brain. Then the brain starts to increase and very quickly and very fast increases from less than a pound, which was the, is the, um, the brain also of a chimp, gorilla, little more, but still less than a pound, to about three pounds of brain. That's what we have. It's an increase by 300% in just two million years. That's a very fast rate of evolution. So something was happening, human evolution, that was favoring the increase in brain size. But once again, you have one feature bipedal gait evolving first, the large brain evolving later, that these older fossils are bipedal. I am showing here with this uh, um, fossil from uh, an animal or a, a hominid called Australopithecus afarensis. This is the first time the, the large part of a single individual, the fossils of a, of a uh, large part of the, an individual have been found together. This is a single individual who was baptized by the name of Lucy, and uh, a lot of publicity was done around it when it was discovered 35 years ago. And it's responsible, this discovery is responsible for the uh, United States Foundations, National Science Foundation and others, inver investing uh, much more than they had before in discovering human fossils and also many private foundations in the United States and elsewhere. That's why we have had in the last two or three decades an enormous number of fossil discoveries of hominids. But I want to show you how the uh, anatomists will know that, that C. Lucy, who was a young woman, adult woman, uh, and it was very small, by the way, about less than three feet tall, that she was bipedal. He, you have here the hip bone, the pelvis, and I have it drawn here, enlarged because he was, Lucy was much smaller than we are, enlarged so that we can com compare the configuration to that of modern human and to that of a gorilla or chimpanzee. And it's quite obvious that with a hip like that one of Lucy, she had to walk this way. She couldn't walk knuckle walking 
as gorillas and chimps do. And of course, they don't have very long arms either. So other evidence that Darwin uses is comparative anatomy. Here you have the skeleton of the four limbs uh, of a human, a dog, a bird, and a whale. The whale uses for swimming, the bird for flying, the dog for running, and we use it for pointing or handling objects. Yet all these four limbs are made of the same set of bones, organized in the same way, put together in the same way. They have been modified slightly to serve different functions, as Darwin was saying it would happen. But the only explanation of why they will be the same bones, organized in the same way, is because they inherited them from an ancestor, namely Tiktaalik, that uh, intermediate between fish and amphibians that we see, we saw before. Uh, you know, an engineer does not use, does not design a, an airplane and a car and a boat with a, made of the same materials and the same configuration. It uses completely new materials starting from scratch. The only explanation for the, the, similar, the similarity of these structures is inherited from an ancestor that had these structures already. Well, Darwin died and a hundred years after the publication of the origin of a species a new field of biology evolved namely molecular biology. Uh, molecular biology gives us now the strongest evidence for evolution not that we need it because the evidence for evolution was definitely very strong, but also now is the best way to reconstruct evolutionary history of living organisms. Um, I can make the following claim that we can today reconstruct the evolutionary history of any living organisms with as much precision as we may want. Just is a question of uh, investing time and resources, but the molecular biology, the DNA and the proteins which carry the information that makes organisms organisms what they are, is, has so much evolutionary information, so much a record of evolutionary history that, as I said, we can reconstruct today evolutionary history of living organisms with as much precision as, as we may want. The first major demonstration of how that could be done concerned a very small protein and a very small gene called cytochrome C. Um, this is, it comes from a paper published in 1967 in the journal called Science. Um, this by two authors, Walter Fitch, who is the evolutionist, and Emmanuel Margolias, which is a biochemist working on proteins. And what they did is using this small protein. At the time, the technology didn't allow to obtain the sequence of letters in the DNA. Today, we do these things with DNA much easier, much faster, much less costly. But at that time, we didn't know how to do it with DNA. So it was done with proteins. Proteins are made up of 20 different kinds of components called amino acids. So they decipher the components in 20 different organisms of this protein, and it was a small protein precisely because it was so laborious to get the, the sequence of amino acids. They couldn't do it with a large protein, but they managed to do it with cytochrome C. And this is how the technique is used. 
Um, you get the, for, exam, for example, for humans, the sequence of amino acids. This protein is 104 amino acids long, as I said, small protein. He, this is number one. Don't ask me why it starts with number nine, because it's a different story, but it's not relevant. So in humans, the first amino acid is this one, um, glycine, then asparagine, valine, and you go on, and then on on top, and then you end with the last one here, GLU, glutamic acid. Then you have the sequence in monkeys, in, in particularly in this rhesus monkey, and you have the same sequence, and notice that it is the same everywhere except for one difference here. And then you have the sequence in horses, uh, which is different in, about, in 11 or 12 places relative to the, to the monkeys or to the humans. So with information of this kind, one uh, builds a matrix which says human to monkey, one difference, human to horse, 12, monkey to horse, 11. And with that, one reconstructs evolutionary history, saying since evolution is a gradual process, those two species which are more similar must have had a more recent common ancestor and the species that more different, a more remote ancestor. Moreover, the difference between humans and monkeys we, have, we know happens in the human lineage because in that position um, where um, humans and monkeys are different, monkeys and horses and many other animals are identical. So we know there's a change that happened in the hominid lineage. So with um, this kind of approach, we have, the, they got the sequence for 20 species from humans to yeast. And now this is, each amino acid is represented with single letter rather than with three as before. And eventually they counted the difference. They have a matrix like this, fed this to a computer. Computers were becoming available to scientists in the middle 60s, so they, this could not have been solved by hand. But using a computer, the computer gave them, gave them this uh, tree, this evolutionary tree, an ancestor with one branch going to the yeasts, uh, another one going to the animals. The branch of the animals is splitting at some point between insects and vertebrates, and then also subvertebrates coming about. Uh, when this paper was published in 1967, was a revelation, uh, suddenly realizing that we could reconstruct 2,000 million years of evolution, 2 million years of evolution, just by looking at small protein. We have thousands of proteins in all organisms, thousands of genes. Every one of them is a record of the same evolutionary history. That's why I say you can reconstruct evolutionary history with as much precision as you want, because if the first gene or the first protein does not give you enough um, confidence, statistical confidence, you can do another and another and another. They are all recording the same evolutionary history. Well, so now we have the evolutionary history of the all living organisms, from the last universal common ancestor to the three major groups of organisms, bacteria, archaea, that those of you who are not biologists or have not studied biology in recent years may not know what it is. It's a very large group of organisms, all microscopic, 
like bacteria, but very different from bacteria. They are very abundant in the ocean. Thousands of new species are discovered every year. And then the eukaryotes, which are animals with complex cells like we do, including fungi, animals, and plants, which are only three branches of the tree of life. This tree is constructed with the convention that the length of each arm, each branch is approximately uh, proportional to the number of species of that group. So here we have the two million species of animals, and you can see how many millions of other species live. So this is the evidence for evolution. And now we have this alternative, which used to be called creationism, and now it's called intelligent design uh, and elaboration of it. Um, what can we say about this alternative? So let me spend the last few minutes uh, talking about intelligent design. What one can say about intelligent design is that the critique that they do of evolutionary theory is wrong. Intelligent design it is not science. And moreover, and this is perhaps is most surprising to many of you, that creationism and intelligent design are contrary to religion. They are argued because supposedly they favor a religious approach to the world, and I will try to convince you briefly in a few minutes that actually is contrary to religion because it implies that God is incompetent, cruel, and amounts to blasphemy. So briefly about the three points. Here you have Michael Behe, He's the only proponent of intelligent design that is a bona fide biologist. He's not an evolutionist. He's a biochemist, professor at Lehigh University, and wrote this uh, book called Darwin's Black Box. And he says, how do we confidently detect design when a number of separate interacting components are ordered in such a way as to accomplish a function beyond the individual components? Well, the same argument of William Paley, about the watch and the human eye. Now, this is the difference between Behe and Paley. Behe knows about Darwin, so knows that evolution can happen by steps. But he says, no, for complex organs, uh, that doesn't work because of something that he calls irreducible complexity. Something is irreducible complex when cannot be produced directly, it cannot be produced directly by slight successive modifications for a precursor system because any precursor to an irreducibly complex system that is missing a part is by definition non-functional. So the human eye could not have come apart at the time because unless you have everything, the eye does not work. So it's, a, uh, uh, it's in a irreducibly complex organ. Well, really, here you have the human eye with all these parts, and you really need them all to function. Let me point out that the optic nerve crosses the retina, and it will be relevant in one minute. Um, here you have limpets. I don't know how many of you know what limpets are. They are little mollusks. You have them in the intertidal everywhere around here. They are about um, mollusks which are about the size of the wider part, the single conic shell, the wider part is about the, the size set of the nail of my big finger, and, and you look casually at the rocks, you don't see them, they look like variations in the shape of the rocks, 
Um, but if it's a low tide and you look carefully, you see them moving there, they are grazing, they are eating the uh, microscopic algae and other things that have been bought by the tide. Well, why the, when the tide comes, they attach themselves to the rock strongly because with the force of the tide, if the tide can takes them away to the open ocean, they die. They have not lived there. So they attach themselves with such force that if you try to pick them up with your own hands, and again, some of you might, may have tried this, you cannot get them. They attach themselves once they attach to the, to the rock, and no matter how much force you exercise, can move them. Well, these creatures need to know whether there is light or not, these limpets. Um, if there is light, that means it's low tide, it's time to graze. Uh, if there is no light, they are under the tide, so it's time to attach themselves to the rock. So they have just a few pigmented cells that allow them to know whether there is light or not, and, and a few nerve fibers, which carry the information to their little brains. Here you have a, another mollusk. The, I'm going to use only mollusks to illustrate the evolution of the eye, because mollusks are a much larger group of organisms than vertebrates. They are much older, and they live in many more different kinds of environments, so we can see that according to the different needs that they have had over time, they have evolved the appropriate kind of eyes. So we don't need to, to, to show the evolution of the eye in mollusks. You don't have to do fossils. We can look at living organisms. And here you have a, a, another mollusk. This is a mollusk, the slit shell mollusk that probably most of you don't know, have heard of, unless those of you who have travel in northwestern Spain, where it's a great delicacy. It's a mollusk. It's also eaten in China. It does not exist in the coast of the United States. Now, this mollusk um, has more pigmented cells and a concave shape and more nerve fibers. It can not only detect whether it's light or not, but also the direction of light. Here you have a marine snail, Nautilus. You can see now a larger number of cells and nerve fibers, a large number of, of pigmented cells, and then a concave uh, configuration that now has a small opening, uh, so these individuals, these species can detect light, where is light, the direction of light, and also they can detect motion. These uh, uh, snails which live in the open ocean this is one of the species that Darwin refers as an example known from, from shells and from fossil shells that have not changed for millions of years. And indeed, they have been living in the open ocean and the circumstances have not changed. So there is no reason for them to have changed. Um, here you have another um, marine snail with a more developed eye. And finally, the eye of an octopus or a squid which is a camera eye like ours, um, has a, the same part that we do, but they don't have a problem that we do. You remember that the optic nerve in vertebrates, for reasons of the, how the, the eye evolves in vertebrates, the optic nerve forms inside the eye, so it has to cross the retina to go to the brain. In the case of mollusks, 
the nerve fibers were always in the outside, so the optic nerve can go to the brain without crossing the retina, so they don't have a blind spot, which, of course, leads, uh, should lead proponents of intelligent design to the conclusion that God loves squids and octopuses more than he loves humans. So the critique of evolution is wrong, and as you may know, in 2005, towards the end of the year, for six weeks, there was a trial of the theory of intelligent design because the school board in the Dover district of central Pennsylvania have ordered professors of biology that they would teach intelligent design. The biologists, teachers of biology refused, so instead they were reading, they were asked to read a statement at the beginning of the class, which they refused to do. The superintendent would come and read, saying that there is an alternative to evolution, which is intelligent design. That was taken to court. The, uh, was, um, the presiding judge in federal court was John E. Jones, a self-proclaimed evangelical Christian, appointee of uh, our previous president, George W. Bush, therefore not suspicion of being a liberal or leftist, and yet um, he, among the many points that he made in a very long decision after six weeks of trial, that the ID movement misrepresents the status of the theory of evolution in the scientific community. It criticized the theory of evolution, he says, with no grounds for that criticism, which is the point that I was making. Then, ID is not science, my second point about ID. It cannot be tested. When one tells Michael Behe about these defects, like the eye or some others that I will mention in a second, um, he says, well, how do you, I know the intentions of the designer? He, the designer may not want to make, may not want to make perfect organs perfect parts. I don't know the intentions of the designer. So this is no scientific theory because you don't know the intentions of the designer, then there's nothing to test. So it, it cannot be tested. But moreover, there is no any, any evidence, any research or any hypothesis to test that might have been published in proper scientific journals. Um, a retired professor of law from UC Berkeley, our own university, Philip Johnson is one of the initiators of the intelligent design movement. In 1998, said, give us five or ten years. This is relatively early in the times in the development of the intelligent design ideas. Give us five or ten years, and you'll see scientific breakthroughs biologists had not dreamed of before ID. Five years went by, ten years went by, nothing. So, my final point is contrary to religion. ID will be correct if it would stand for imperfect design or incompetent design or inept design, but not intelligent design. Some simple examples, the human jaw you know, is not big enough for our teeth, so they have to pull our wisdom teeth. An in engineer who have designed the human jaw Will, fire, will be fired the next day. I mean, you make a jaw that's not big for the teeth, and they want to blame God for that. Um, the birth canal, as you know, is not big enough for the head of the baby. We know where that problem comes from, as, as the problem of the 
jaw not being big enough has to do with our large brain, which increased by a factor of three over two million years, and uh, that made the head much bigger. So the natural selection favored the reduction of the jaw and, and also the reduction of the teeth, but the effects on the teeth are secondary relative to the jaw, so that's why they are not becoming small fast enough. And, uh, and the birth canal of mother humans, is, mother women, is larger than those of our ancestors, even correcting for overall size. So the birth canal has become bigger, but the back of head is so big, they still have problems of childbirth. Chimps don't have that problem. Chimps, when a chimp is ready to give birth, you know, somehow the other chimps or the female chimps know it and start to move and sort of dance, and then, boom, the baby is born, and they buy the umbilical cord and the it. Now, one thing that happens in human birth, which in addition to be painful, is that the, the uh, baby is born at much earlier stages of development than the baby of a chimp or a gorilla, precisely so that there has not been, um, the, the, the head has not grown as much as it would have grown if, he would, if pregnancy would have lasted long. So we are born um, much earlier. It has some very interesting consequences, including large, uh, larger period during the which the child is dependent on the parents and therefore the opportunities for education and a number of other things that could be said about it. So you have all these um, um, defects. You guys have the case of the four limbs that I was showing you before. The same bones put together in the same way for functions as different as running or flying or swimming or handling objects. Then you have the problem with um, not only incompetent design, but cruelty. You know, predators that can only live by killing other animals. Um, and don't think that chimps are nice or baboons are nice. Uh, they are very cruel. Uh, chimps um, are largely vegetarian, but if they can catch a small monkey, they love them. It's a delicacy. And what they love is to bite, to eat them bite by bite. They don't kill the monkey. They eat bite by bite, and the monkey is crying, crying to, to, to high hell, and, and the chimp is having so much fun eating it. Uh, baboons, uh, you know, there are some baboons that live in troops, which is a dominant male, then a number of females, which are um, mostly uh, feeding, breastfeeding their babies. Um, and when one of the babies stops being a baby, then they go into estrus right away, and then the dominant male, which is the only one male for the, uh, for the troop, will mate with her and becomes pregnant again uh, very quickly. Well, if that male, the dominant male of the troop, um, uh, dies or is killed or is removed by some way by another male, the new male, the first thing that he does is to kill all the babies. This is exactly what you would expect from evolution because genes that would move a baboon male to kill all the babies will be favored by natural selection because once the babies are killed, the females go into estros, the male mates with them, and they are going to carry his genes, the genes that promoted his killing the babies. 
So these genes will be multiplied. So that's why you have behaviors like that. Then you have things that I call here oddities. You probably had heard of the praying mantis, these insects that have the four limbs like this. And you probably have heard after the male mates, the female comes and eats him. Yeah? Well, that's the PG-13 version. <laughs> the grown-up version is that the female tries to eat the head of the male first because then the nerve centers in the head of the a male are not in control of his sexual organs and she takes over and gets fertilized much more effectively. And of course, she is the rest of the body afterwards. She does not always succeed. Now, that is very common. There are hundreds of species uh, that do that and some eat the male before, some during, and some after the sexual act. We have all sorts of variations. Now, this is perfectly understandable in evolutionary terms because these creatures, which include some flies like midge flies, many spiders virtually, well, most species of spiders, many crabs and, and many other kinds of animals have this um, um, uh, this process in which the male mates only once in life anyway. If a male is going to mate only once in life, the best that the male can do for his genes is to be eaten by the female because then the female is healthy, is going to produce eggs which are healthier and have more um, success with his genes. You know, so this is something that is very common. I mentioned here the midge flies, which are some tiny flies that you may see sometimes in the summer flying in, in, in small, they make almost a small cloud. Uh, this, uh, in this case, the female introduces her um, proboscis, makes a hole in the shell of the male. The shell is not good uh, for, as food. Introduces a, an, an enzyme, digest the whole male and swallows it, and then swallows the sexual organs intact, and then inside uses another enzyme to break the, the membrane of the sex organs and then gets fertilized there. So this is a case of eating before the mating. And as I said, there are all sorts of variations. And then the parasites, which they exist only for the purpose of, they can only survive and live by killing other, organi other organisms, or at least making them sick. So let me um, make two points. One of them uh, that, as you may know, uh, most of you, certainly women know, that more than 20% of all human pregnancies end in spontaneous abortion during the first two months of pregnancy. 20% of all pregnancies end in spontaneous abortion during the first two months. That's because the human reproductive system is a mess. So badly designed that so many of these embryos are not viable, and the best thing that can happen is that they die before approach, uh, approach birth. But there are about 100 million births in the world per year, so we have about 20 million abortions due to the fact that the human reproductive system is so badly designed, you want to attribute that to God, they are making of God 
the greatest abortionist ever in a monstrous scale. That's why I say it just amounts to, to blasphemy. And that's why I speak of Darwin's gift to religion, because now all these things can be explained as the result of natural processes. With the Copernican Revolution came, became the case that we don't have to explain you know, earthquakes and tsunamis like last month in Japan or volcanic eruptions before they were attributed to the actions of God. Now we see the result of natural processes. The same with living organisms. Due to Darwin, now we don't have to attribute all these abnormalities, irregularities, and parasitism and sadism that I have, telling you, have been telling you about to the action specific design of the creator, to the, but rather to the result of natural processes. So that's, again, why I think that Darwin's theory was a gift to religion. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.